You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I am delighted to have a conversation with Dr. Adele LaFrance, who is a psychologist, and she's based in Denver. She is also the co-founder of something called Emotion-Focused Family Therapy, which is a pretty interesting concept, and I think maybe a helpful sort of addition to anybody who is struggling through the refeeding process themselves, or refeeding a loved one, or just know somebody that's going through that um because it's pretty emotional isn't it refeeding food weight gain all of those things so i'm super excited to talk to her about this we're going to get on with it without further ado here is dr adele lafrance i am a psychologist and an associate professor at laurentian university and um i'm um, co-developer of emotion-focused family therapy, which is a new treatment model that was developed for eating disorders. And um, so I do a lot of research as well. Great. And so tell us a little bit about that emotion-focused family therapy. So emotion-focused family therapy kind of was developed in response to um, treatment failures, actually. So uh, I was... Um, doing family-based treatment, which is a well-known first-line approach for uh, treating family-based eating disorders in children and adolescents. And, but I was working in a day treatment program, and family-based treatment was developed for outpatient. Um, so we were adapting the model because we really wanted to harness the power of caregivers. But there were times where parents um, you know, wouldn't engage in the treatment or or would refuse to engage in certain interventions or um, would accommodate or enable their loved one's symptoms. And for a while I fell into the trap of blaming parents for, you know, not um, doing the right thing or not caring enough or not getting it. So those were the kind of three taglines that used to come out of my mouth, unfortunately. And then um, I started to get really curious about why, why is this? Why is it that this mom, you know, doesn't want to support her daughter to finish her milk? Why is it that this dad doesn't want to support her, you know, his son in finishing this meal? And through clinical exploration, through asking lots of questions of caregivers and doing some research, what I found was what we just talked about. Um, when parents struggled to support their loved one's recovery in these ways, it had nothing to do with motivation. It had nothing to do with whether or not they got it. And it had way more to do with how afraid they were that something worse would happen. Now, so that was one element. The other element was I was coaching parents and caregivers to support their loved one to eat more and to have fewer symptoms. Um, but aside from, you know, just encouraging them to eat more or not to engage in symptoms, I wasn't really teaching them any strategies to actually increase the effectiveness of their efforts. And I write often about this one particular scenario, but there was this 
time when parents came in and, and said, yeah, we, we got her to eat more, but plates went flying in the kitchen. And I was like, what? Plates went flying. I couldn't believe it. And there had been many, many, many stories to come of, of similar outbursts. And I thought, oh my gosh, we need to support these parents and caregivers with skills so that there doesn't have to be this level of conflict. And in some cases, trauma, you know, um, when we're supporting children and adolescents to eat more. So from those kind of two observations, two conundrums, actually, that in which I found myself and I felt helpless as a clinician, uh, you know, I started working with others to find ways to um, make it more likely that mealtimes could be successful, but also less conflictual. And um, so part of the emotion focused family therapy model is teaching parents and caregivers emotion coaching skills. So it's a very structured form of support to increase compliance, to decrease outbursts, but also to strengthen the relationship. So instead of going through this difficult phase of battling it out, you know, with the eating disorder, using these skills can actually um, improve the relationship between the parent and caregiver and their child. So that was one element. The other element, though, is that we found that in doing so and using these emotion coaching strategies, what would happen over time was that the child or the adolescent would actually internalize the ability to process their emotions in healthy and adaptive ways, which meant that they no longer needed symptoms to cope with stress or emotional distress. And I was really interested in that part. So I, I spoke to neuroscientists and asked them, like, okay, how does this happen? And they explained to me that when parents engage with their loved ones using these techniques, even if it doesn't, like, quote, unquote, work in the moment, the process stimulates building blocks of the brain that facilitate some neural rewiring um, between the frontal lobe and the limbic system, which means that these individuals who are on the receiving end of the emotion coaching, whether it's around mealtimes or around eating disorder thoughts, they're actually benefiting from the creation of new pathways that serve to regulate emotional experiences. So can you give me an example of how, how this could play out, say, in, in, a, in a family scenario or in a real life mealtime, what, what the difference might be? Absolutely. So um, let's say uh, I'll use a teenager, but emotion focused family therapy is applicable across the lifespan. So it is a lifespan approach, but let's use a teenager and parents are uh, supporting her to eat. They put a plate of food down in front of her and um, she says, I don't want to eat that. A very common response would be, well, you have to, you know, you're not well, um, so using logic, for example, to try to convince their loved one to eat more. Well, the problem is if, if emotion is high, the individual loses access to rational thought. They lose access to, um, logical reasoning. They lose access to problem solving. And so using a rational approach when the person is an emotion brain actually doesn't work. So instead, we would coach the parents to say something like this. I don't blame you for not wanting to eat that. You haven't eaten pasta in a really long time. And pasta is a food that 
you have some fears around. And I could imagine that, you know, you might actually be scared of feeling really bloated afterwards or that you might gain too much weight this week. And so it makes sense to me that you wouldn't want to eat that pasta. Now that's the paradox <laughs> by, by when the, when the external environment can mirror the internal experience, the alarm bells of the brain go down. They lessen in their volume, but it, this is not a typical way of responding to someone who has a life threatening eating disorder. Um, and so we're really using the latest of what we're learning in the context of neuroscience to increase engagement. So once a parent responds that way, the, their loved one's brain will be more flexible. It will be more likely to, um, follow through, you know, with the meal. And so when the parent says, okay, sweetie, but you know, you have to, we're going to, you have to eat this pasta and we're going to stay with you and, until you're able to do that. Um, the, the engagement is going to be a lot higher. So that's one of the things that we do is we coach parents to use these strategies to increase compliance, increase treatment engagement, and then also increase the extent to which the sufferer feels heard and feels understood, which then um, strengthens that relationship. Uh And another example is when when, uh, people say, I feel fat. You know, so if you kind of just think like, what's your gut response when someone says to you, I feel fat? It's probably like, oh, no, you look beautiful or you look great. Or, um, and now imagine someone who's severely malnourished says, I feel fat. Again, when we respond in those ways, like, oh, my gosh, you're not fat. You're underweight. You're really underweight. You're really ill you know, we need to do something more. And like, that's not how we see you. So all of that type of responding, which is very normal, very normal, unfortunately, increases the stuckness in the other because they don't feel felt. And so instead, we validate what it must feel like to feel fat in an emaciated body. And if anyone's ever felt fat for a second in their life, they know what it feels like. You know, the, the scales haven't changed. But when you have a day where you feel fat, it feels gross. You feel like hiding. You feel embarrassed. You feel afraid of judgment. And so that's how you can actually validate um, someone's experience of feeling fat, even if they're really underweight. And again, doing so will decrease the rigidity of the brain when it comes to that feeling. How do you then do you then work with parents and caregivers to help them understand these things? Yes, yes. So we can work with the whole family, but to be honest, I actually can I find it more efficient to work with the caregivers on their own um mm-hmm. so that we can I can teach them these skills, but then they can also practice them. Um and they can practice them in a way that's uncensored, you know, so they can they can let us know what their fears are. Let us know what their concerns are. Uh, as part of the EFFT model, I developed a, a measurement tool, and it has to do with treatment engagement fears. And so that's also part of the work. So we will ask parents straight up, if you engage in this 
work with your loved one, if you support them in the behavioral management of their symptoms, with their emotional support, what are you afraid might happen that could be worse? And there's a whole list of items. You know, one of them is I'm afraid that if I do this, I'll burn out or I'll break down. Or I'm afraid that if I do this, if I push her too hard, um, the distress that, that this will cause her will lead her to commit suicide. And I think that those are really, really important conversations to have on the front end and better to have those conversations one-on-one with the caregiver so that they can really reveal to you the extent to which they're suffering, you know, with those fears and doing so helps to reframe and better understand when parents and caregivers engage in behaviors that are unhelpful or even obstructive. And I've learned this from caregivers. Oh my gosh, they have been my greatest teachers. I remember this, there was this one woman and I was very critical of her. So I'm just going to be honest about that. I was very critical, very frustrated. I couldn't understand why she wouldn't follow through on the treatment recommendations to support her daughter. And after some headbutting in session, um, I finally got a clue and realized what was going on. And turns out, um, mom's sister-in-law had attempted suicide when she was a teenager, had an eating disorder and looked a lot like her daughter. And so whenever mom and dad would encourage her to eat more, um, or increase the pressure on her to eat more and daughter would start to feel sad, withdrawn, depressed, they would back right off because they were terrified that she could be pushed so far as to try to kill herself. And so it was like, no wonder they're pushing back. I mean, which parent wouldn't? It made so much sense. And so we were able to kind of figure out how to extricate the parents from the rock and the hard place, sick kid or dead one. And that became a huge component of emotion-focused family therapy where there's a whole module of tools, techniques, um, including psychotherapeutic ones to help parents move through what we call emotional blocks. And so really an emotional block is just anytime someone's emotion um, robs them of access to their instincts or leads to um, inflexible patterns of behavior that you know usually come from fear. So when that emotion really is, is getting in the way of them being able to see what the, what the answer is or what needs to be done. Mm-hmm, exactly. And there's a module for clinicians as well, because um, I've done some research among clinicians working with eating disorders, and I found that turns out we really are all human and clinicians get blocked by their own emotions, their fear, their fear of being to blame. And they also engage in behaviors that can be treatment interfering, that can exclude parents, spouses from treatment if they're scared that, you know, involving them will make it worse. And so we are all human. Um, So whether you're the person with the eating disorder, their parent or their clinician, every person in the system is going to be faced with a situation at one time or another where their fears are going to interfere um, with treatment. Right. Are you able to give an example to maybe illustrate that sort of scenario? 
Absolutely. Um, so I, I do clinician trainings in EFFT, you know, regularly. And one of the common questions is, um, if, if, a, if a parent has an eating disorder, shouldn't we exclude them from the treatment? <laughs> like shouldn't, wouldn't it make it worse if we included them? And so their fear of the parent's influence will make it more likely that they will exclude that parent from the treatment process. Whereas we found that parents who have eating disorders that are active can actually be very good supports to their loved one. Um, there, there are some special considerations for how to uh, frame that involvement, but they don't need to be excluded um, and they can be quite helpful. So that's one example. Another example is that, um, and I just did a clinician training this past weekend. And so part of the training is clinicians, um, stand up and admit to their fears and the way their fears interfere with their treatment. And so it's such a beautiful thing, actually. It's really quite nice. Um, a number of clinicians said, you know, I'm scared of being to blame. And so when treatment starts to get rocky, I'll seek out multiple second opinions from my colleagues to reassure myself that it's not my fault or that it's, you know, the system's fault or that, well, this family is just a really difficult family. And so clinicians can blame family members or point to their low motivation as a way of diffusing their own fears of being to blame. Um, another clinician shared with me that um, sometimes they wouldn't bring cases to supervision if they were feeling, you know, particularly triggered by a family. And this is not to um, criticize clinicians at all. This is going to happen to you no matter what. It happens to me all the time, you know, even though I do research in this area. Like this is just part of being human. So like it can happen with parents and caregivers, it happens with clinicians as well. And so what I say is it's 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 not about it happening. It's about um, what do you do to increase your awareness of the process and then to deal with the process either individually or as a team? I like the recognition that it's not just caregivers and it's not just the actual people in recovery themselves that often have emotional blocks that they need to process in order to um, help a person through recovery in the best way that they can. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, sometimes I, I have... Um, the impression that sometimes that sort of thing doesn't go over well with all clinicians. <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? The idea that the clinician might need, but might be part of the block. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been really lucky that I've been able to work with the clinicians who are quite open to that um, possibility. I think that like anything, if a clinician is afraid of being judged or being to blame, they will be less revealing of themselves and, and they might be more resistant to that framework. And so it might speak to the need for um, uh, some TLC around the culture in that workplace. Um, but on the whole, I, I've, I have had quite positive experiences with clinicians um, who are open to talking about it, exploring it, but there needs to be some, um, there needs to be some element of safety with vulnerability. 
but we do have a ways to go, you know, because one of the studies that I did, and so you, I mean, your observations is astute. One of the studies that I did among eating disorder clinicians, I asked them about <clears throat> the influence of emotion on clinical decisions. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and they were randomly assigned to either answer about the, um, their own emotions or the emotions of their colleagues. And what we found was that there was um, a huge difference in the response rates. So the clinicians who were answering about themselves said that it happened a certain number of times. And then when the clinicians uh, um, answered about their colleagues, they reported it happening about twice as often. <laughs> so there is definitely this, um, there's there's some evidence of a blind spot. Right. That's so fun. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Huh. huh. I, I actually, that has actually surprised me. Um, that, that that is, or maybe I shouldn't be surprised by that. that. That is quite interesting. But that's why we do research, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. it brings up things that might not be obvious. How how then do you use that information to work with clinicians to? Uh, do you think that even just telling them that research makes people think and sort of wonder about themselves? Absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I use the research to say, hey, this is normal. Let's talk about it. Um, because yeah. I really want to increase the frequency of these conversations so that they can be normal, mm -hmm. so that we can see these responses as normal, to be expected, and part of being human. So my goal in doing the research was not to out clinicians as being blinded by their biases. My goal was to um, normalize the process so that as a as a, a field, we can talk about this without pointing fingers. Yeah, that's 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 really cool. I, I love this. Um, and so. Um, do you think that this is this sort of research and these sort of, um, I guess, trainings, discussions, do you think there's something that are, are happening quite a lot in the field or is it something that needs to be developed a lot more? Well, I mean, I think that I think we have a ways to go um, to kind of make it so that eating disorder treatment involves caregivers in a more systematic way, especially with adult sufferers. Um, and I do think we have a ways to go in terms of creating a culture among clinicians where it's absolutely normal to talk about our biases um, mm -hmm. and our blind spots. And so, yeah, I would certainly encourage, um, you know, more of these conversations. And say, say, are there, say if clinicians are operating independently, um, do you think that 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 in and it, when they're not in an environment where these sort of discussions are bit, uh, happening a lot, do you think that sort of leads to a little bit more of this insular um, and and not really looking and reflecting on their own practice? Um, I don't have the data on that, but I can talk about. I can certainly talk about um, what my research has suggests. So. Yeah. My research suggests that being on a treatment team increases the extent to which um, clinicians can become aware of and appreciate their, the, the extent to which their emotions may 
influencer practice. And so being on a treatment team is a protective factor. Um, and so I would certainly encourage clinicians who are on the, their own to, to join peer supervision groups um, so that they can protect themselves from their biases. On the other hand, uh, I have seen also um, on teams that that clinicians can become polarized in their perspectives depending on how things go. And so I'll give you an example. So we use Janet Treasure's animal models, um, but on clinical teams as well. So everyone on the team identifies as a kangaroo or a rhino, for example. So if you're a kangaroo, you tend to be overprotective. You tend to kind of want to increase length of stay, increase treatment intensity. If you're a rhino, you know, you might look at it more practically. You might be more likely to kind of um, push for a discharge so that the person can be more independent, so on. Now, if you have a rhino on the team and you have a kangaroo on the team and you're making a decision about discharge, when the kangaroo does their kangaroo thing, it might actually make the rhino even more rhino. And then both those clinicians end up polarizing in their tendencies. And so if the team isn't aware of these polarizing effects, then it can, um, it can increase the potential for problems both in terms of team cohesion, but also decision-making. So there, so it's either wh whether you're in private practice, working on your own or on a team, um, we all have to think about how to protect ourselves from ourselves. Um, but it's, it's going to be slightly different in terms of the focus. Mm, yeah, that's a really great um, example. Thank you. And so I'm now thinking of there will probably be parents listening to this podcast who after you've given that example, might be may maybe occurring to them that they're seeing that happen in the team that is helping them with their child or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, how mm -hmm. how would an outsider of that team, if this if this team isn't aware of these things and hasn't been through such trainings to build awareness, how might an an outsider help draw awareness? Are there resources for this or? Yeah. So. Um, uh, so if you go to emotionfocusfamilytherapy.org, um, the whole model is laid out. Mentalhealthfoundations.ca has so many resources available. And we've just completed the first draft of the clinician's manual um, that for submission through the American Psychological Association. And, and there's going to be a whole section on that. Um, there's research available out there um, that I've completed, that others have completed, um, looking at these aspects, but from a very, very practical perspective, if I were a parent and I was worried that perhaps some of these dynamics were occurring, I would bring it to the team in a very uh, respectful, validating manner. Um, because one of the things that I found is that sometimes advocacy, depending on how it's delivered, can have a counterproductive effect. If advocacy is done with um, aggression, criticism, or judgment, I mean, this is just a human process. The mm -hmm. other person will, will respond with defensiveness and perhaps even, you know, like counter responses. And so what I say to parents and caregivers, and of course, when I do, when I do these workshops for parents and caregivers, the EFFT caregiver workshop, 
I tell parents and caregivers that these things happen in clinicians too. So it's not a secret, you know, it's very, very open. We're all human. But I also say to them, um, remember we're all human. And so the best way to approach it is with respect and with validation so that you can have um, productive conversations that are more likely to be fruitful. Well, that was very interesting. I found that interesting, especially from the perspective of somebody who had a lot of emotion around food at one time. And it's actually one of the things that I consider a marker of progressing towards full recovery is when food ceases to be emotional. So I noticed that when I had an active eating disorder and I was restricting, food was emotional in two ways. First of all, it was emotional from the malnutrition perspective where my brain was trying to motivate me. My brain was using emotion to motivate me to eat. So it was using these lustful emotions towards food, thinking about food the whole time, fantasizing about food. But then there was also the fear-based emotion of, um, of weight gain and any other things and just eating the wrong thing or this idea that I could eat too much. And so from there, I was also having the emotions of regret, guilt, shame, disgust, and feeling threatened by my strong emotions of wanting to eat a lot of food. And so for me, one of the key things that happened as I started to mentally recover, I'm talking about this regardless of your body size, mentally recover, was that food just ceased to be so emotional. You know, I still like food, but it's just not, it's not the like, it's not on the pedestal that it used to be, that's for sure, because my brain doesn't need to do that anymore because it's not in malnutrition, so it doesn't need to put food on the pedestal. And um, I certainly don't get any feelings of guilt, regret, shame, or any of those things. But I also did a lot of rewiring work to teach my brain that those emotions were not required after eating anymore. Um, thank you so much to Dr. Adele LaFrance for talking to me. I, I found that a very refreshing point of view. Um, and I hope that the resources that she provided there, I will link to these in the show notes. I really hope that those help some of you. And I love that she's doing a lot of ongoing research. And I think I can tell you she's going to come back and talk to us about some research that she's doing into treatment resistance and binge eating disorder and things like that. I really hope she does because it's such an area that needs more work and more help and more focus. So definitely check her out. I'll also see if I can link to her social media accounts so that if you want to, you can follow her and get in touch. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.